Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode 10, which is about dress rehearsals, getting your own back, and doing time. I'm Nina, a person who has only written one play and it wasn't very good. I'm Dave, a person who has written lots of plays but have only seen some of them performed. And we're reading all the way through Tova Janssen's Moomin books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomins would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication and eventually we will cover all of Tova Janssen's Moomin stories. Today we're reading Moomin Summer Madness, part two, from chapter six until the end of the book. Our themes for this book are appearances and, like with all of the books, relationships. And in the time between this episode and the last episode, I have still not moved, but I have got a lot more boxes. There are many more boxes in the background. That's right. And I'm feeling very much lots of the anxiety that happened at the beginning of the book. I'm feeling that like, oh no, my possessions, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be damaged? But hopefully by the end of this move, I'll feel like they feel at the end of this book, which we'll talk about later on. So, eagle-eared listeners will remember and possibly be quite anxious about the fate of Little Mai. There's not been very many women characters until this book, and so we don't want to lose one of them before their time. You'll remember that a little cliffhanger for last time was Little Mai fell in the water and nobody could see her again. Dun-dun-dun! So, at this point in the book, the narrative splits three ways. Some of the story, we're with Little Mai. Some of the story, we're with Moomin Troll and the Snort Maiden. And some of the story, we're with the family at the theatre. But I'm going to start with Little Mai to put all your minds at rest. That's a good call. Also a call that Tova made. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Also how the book goes. So, Little Mai falls into the water. Luckily, she's so tiny that she tumbles around like a bubble. And she finds some other stuff that has been dropped into the water. And one of those things is Moomin Mama's work basket with all of her yarn and wool. So she climbs in there and she goes to sleep. Luckily, Little Mai is a very good and sound sleeper. So she just sort of has this idyllic little sleep in the little basket, drifting down the river. And then a fishing hook lands in the basket and she is pulled ashore by Snuffkin. So Snuffkin is back in the book. Hooray! Snuffkin's in the book. It's great to have my friend Snuffkin in the book. Also, this is a second moment within the Moomin stories where we have a Moses basket-like situation. But this time it is the first Moses fishing out the second Moses. Who is his little sister. Though they do not recognise each other. But I like that the narration has actually acknowledged that and been like, it was a really long time since they'd seen each other and last time Little Mai was really small. So Snufkin 
has been staying away for so long because he has a plot to wreak revenge upon a park keeper. And this plot, for reasons, can only happen on Midsummer's Eve. His hate for park keepers is so strong that it overrides any love he might feel for Moomin Troll. Yeah. Meanwhile, Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden, you may remember, had found a nice little house. So they go, they knock and they go inside and it's all set up for a midsummer party. There is a filly jonk in there. Our first filly jonk. She's wearing like a sad little hat with a sad little jingle bell on the end. I do love filly jonks. <laughs> the intention of the jingle bell was to make her feel better and cheerful, but it only makes her feel sadder. Yeah, which is a very filly jonk kind of thing. It's very relatable. She set up her whole house for a midsummer party. There's flowers on the table. She's made a pancake, although she's burned it to a crisp. She sent out her invitations to her aunt and uncle, but they never, ever, ever come. She's been sending them invites for years and she's never had an answer. This means every single year the village onk decorates her house for a midsummer party that no guests come to. It's even bleaker than it seems at first when you think about how this is a pattern in her life. So understandably, the Philly Junk's feeling really down and she explains why she's feeling so down to Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden. And Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden make this really good suggestion. They're like, well, if your aunt and uncle never come, why don't you invite people who would enjoy a party? Like, for example, us. And she's like, oh, wow, can you invite people who aren't your relatives? And they're like, totally invite people who are not your relatives. You can invite whoever you want to have a party with. And this suddenly becomes like the Philly Junk's best Midsummer Eve ever. And like, she's so ready to do anything. She's been waiting all of her life for this kind of adventure. Meanwhile, Snufkin and Little Mai are executing Snufkin's plan. Gone to the park, which is full of signs that say things like no laughing and no walking on the grass. And he's got a packet of Hattie Fatner seeds. Yes, Hattie Fatner seeds. Some more Hattie Fatner lore is sprinkled in, (laughs) like the seeds themselves. So he goes onto the park keeper's immaculate lawns and starts carefully scattering the Hattie Fatner seed, not too near each other so they don't get their arms tangled up when they grow, which is very considerate, and also how you should sow most plants, not too near each other so they don't get in each other's way. And they can only grow on Midsummer Eve, which is why... He had to wait. What follows is this really interesting (laughs) description of how Hattie Fatners grow. So first they all are popping up like little, like, snowball, like, puffball mushrooms. And then gradually from their little, like, you see the top of their little white skulls, their little shiny white skulls. And then you can see their little eyes poking out above the level of the ground. And then the little arms come out and the park keeper... And the wardress, the park wardress, and they both seem to be vaguely hemulin shaped, yeah? The hemulins, yeah. Start panicking. The Hattie Fatners, when they first come into the world, are specially electrified, like especially electrical and staticky. And so everything starts smelling weirdly of burn rubber and the buttons on the park keeper's uniform, which are metallic, get all electrified and glowy and his ears start glowing. <laughs> uh, the wardress seems to have been keeping prisoner 24 woodies. Children of the woods. Yeah. I don't know if they're being kept prisoner, though. I feel like they're coming to the park. And they're having to be looked after when they're in the park. Yeah. Because that's the job of the wardens. Yeah, to keep them in the sand pit and off the grass. Yep. They are freed 
because the park employees have run away. Snufkin runs around pulling up all the signs and then all the small children start following Snufkin and Snufkin's like, run along, go back to mother. And they're just all following him like little ducklings almost. Yes. Like he's a mother hen and it really doesn't suit him and he's really quite annoyed by this. But whatever, they're following him so he starts teaching them his ways. Meanwhile, at the midsummer party at the Philly Jonks house, they get drunk, they toast their mothers and fathers and everyone else they can think of. Moomin Troll worries about how's Moomin Mama feeling right now. Of course he does. And Snort Maiden's like, she's probably celebrating, which she is. They smell the Hattie Fatness smell. They sing, they find the discarded park signs, which means all of this must be happening in quite a small perimeter. There's a map at the beginning of the book that shows us the area that it all is taking place in. They make their fire out of the discarded park signs. Where they say, how wonderful, everything's allowed. What a night. Let's build a bonfire of the notices and dance around it until they're burned to ashes. It is a great line. They decide to do some midsummer magics. This involves like doing some magic and then like keeping quiet until tomorrow. So Moomin Troll goes off to do the picking flowers magic. I think he has to pick nine different kinds quietly. They're not allowed to speak once they've picked them. And then the Philly Jonk and the Snork Maiden decide to do a much nastier magic, like kind of a scary magic, which involves spinning around seven times, mumbling and stomping so that you get dizzy and then walking backward toward the well and then looking into it and hope to see the face of your betrothed, your beloved, the person you're going to marry. Useful for the Snort Maiden, because if she just puts her hand over her hair, it would look like the person she wants to marry. Yeah. (laughs) They get a bit spooked doing this magic, which is very relatable, but, you know, you can't stop a midsummer magic once you've started a midsummer magic, so they go through with it, they peer into the well... At first, they see only themselves, and then, even worse, they see a police amulet, and they've been nabbed, they're caught. He calls them grotely pyromaniacs. They are being accused of the crime of pulling down the park signs and the burning them. They didn't pull down the park signs, but they can't say that because they've done the magic things and they can't talk until the morning. They literally can't tell anybody that they're innocent, even though they are pretty innocent. Yeah. Also, another example of the groke being used as a swear word in the Moomin universe. It happens quite a lot in the second part of the book. So the Snork Maiden, the Philly Jonk and Moomin Troll get carted off to prison. Meanwhile, at the theatre, everybody is full of hope for some reason. <laughs> They get Emma talking about her actual interests and she shows them a picture of her husband, the Philly Jonk, and his niece, the Philly Jonk. And so now, if you hadn't guessed before, you realise that Emma is the Philly Jonk's aunt by marriage and possibly the aunt who never answers the invitation. Definitely, I think. And the reason that she doesn't answer the invitations partly is that her husband's died and so she's like (laughs) getting these invitations for her and her husband. I mean, the main reason she gives is that she reckons the Philly Jonk 
Villagonk wants to get into theatre and she's being a gatekeeper. This also means she hasn't told the Villagonk that the uncle is dead. I mean, Emma's not a great person. Oh, sorry, rat. She also explains to everybody, but especially Moomin Mama, about plays. She does them a drawing of the theatre and, like, labels everything how everything works and what everything's for. And everybody gets really into the idea of a play. And Moomin Papa should write the play because he's written his memoirs and how difficult can a play really be once you've written some memoirs? Yep, lots of hilarious writer gags really in this bit. Yeah, yeah. And he needs everybody to be really supportive and like bring him his pot of pens and his bowl of sweets and leave him alone in the quiet. And he does a first draft and Emma tells him it's rubbish. <laughs> this is real notes, Moomin Papa. This is what you should expect if you go into the real world. Emma reckons that he should write in blank verse, not with rhymes. It's hexameter, actually, isn't it, that she's having him write in, which he finds really difficult. It needs to be a tragedy because Miss Abel wants to be a tragic heroine. Quite correct. I mean, tragedy is best anyway. <laughs> Emma informs Moomin Papa that in a tragedy, everybody needs to be related to each other and everybody needs to die at the end except one person. So that's what a tragedy is. But how can they be angry at each other if they're of the same family? Asked Moomin Mama. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> no comment. Just a line that's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Moomin Papa's own idea about the play is he really, really wants there to be a lion in it. He's going to crowbar in a lion, whatever it takes. Meanwhile, Snufkin has too many children. Like his mother. Well, no, because too many children suits her. Lots of children is good for the Mimble. Yeah. Lots of children is bad for Snufkin. He's having a terrible time. He doesn't know how to parent. Like, he's very stressed out by all of their needs and all of their requests, and he can't keep their names straight in his head, and they've eaten nearly all his food, and none of them smoke. It's a bad time. Little Mai keeps giving him advice. Yes. It's all quite bad advice because it's the way that her sister raises her, so she's like, threaten them with the groke, and he's like, does that make you a good little girl? And she goes, of course not. So he does do a little bit of threatening. Only later on, I think. Basically, at the beginning, he ignores her. But by the end of the book, he's at the end of his tether. You can see how affected Snufkin is by this existential confrontation with responsibility. That He, he finds himself wishing that flowers were turnips. And I think that's a very apt note on what having children can do to one. Mm. So he's trudging through the rain with all of the children. He's got like one under each arm, one on each shoulder, one on his hat. They're all complaining about being wet and cold and hungry and they come across the Philly Jonks house and there's no one in because the Philly Jonks in prison. So that's fine. They move in for a while. <laughs> he's like, let's just settle down here and have a nice fire and eat some beans till I can remember all your names. He already had some beans and there are more beans in the house. Meanwhile in jail, it's the next morning so the prisoners can talk again and they start chatting with the jailer. The jailer's really excited to have three whole prisoners because that's the most he's ever had since he got his jailer's degree. <laughs> so he's very excited that they're there and he doesn't believe that they're innocent. And their sentence is to write out strictly forbidden 5,000 times and like put all the signs back up and be very sorry. But they keep going, no, because we didn't do it. And he's like, everybody says he didn't do it. Then some letters fall from the sky. And at first, the jailer's very excited, thinking that someone's sending coded letters to his prisoners. But no, it's a playbill for the Moomin's play, which is called 
the lion's brides or blood will out <laughs> and he gets really nostalgic because he once went to see a play when he was a child and sounds like maybe it was sleeping beauty it was about a princess going to sleep in a rose bush yeah and he's like that was really great i wish i could go and see this play but obviously i can't because there'd be no one to watch you prisoners and they're like can't you ask anyone else and he's like oh there is my cousin but like she's too kind-hearted she might let you out and they're like oh no go on you really deserve to go and see the play and they really like sort of butter him up to invite his cousin <laughs> so his cousin does come and she is a small thin and timid hemulin hemulins are always used as figures of authority so police park keepers so this this is an interesting one. This is an interesting twist on the Hemulin. Yes, our first small Hemulin for a start. And so she shows up. She's got a crochet. She's making something. The Hemulin jailer goes off to watch the play. And she starts chatting to the prisoners. And the prisoners are like, what are you making? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I just like do it because it soothes me. And they're like, why don't you make some slippers? Don't you know anybody with cold feet? And she's like, I've got a girlfriend, which interesting. The Hemulin cousin has a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I think it just means a girlfriend in terms well, of Thomas well, Warburton's translation. Maybe. But I think that you're right that maybe in the original and, you know, from Tuve's point of view. <laughs> I think this is a lesbian Hemulin is what I'm saying. I think you're right. Her special interest is crochet. The other Hemulins in this book, if they have any special interest, it's imposing order, yeah. imp imprisoning people. <laughs> Moomin Troll, the Snork Maiden, and the Philly Jonk all start playing up how cold they are and how they need slippers. And she's like, oh yeah, you know, just sit tight and I'll make you the slippers. But I don't know if you've tried crocheting slippers, Dave. It takes ages and ages, much longer than the play. So they start all like shivering together and saying that they're going to die of cold. <laughs> this Hemulin is quite conscientious and she's like, well, I cannot let you die of cold, especially because my cousin's going to come back and that'll be no fun to have dead prisoners. So she lets them all out and invites them around to her house for tea with jam. She's the nicest Hemulin ever. I would say in some ways you could say she's the hero of the story. Yeah. And then she's like, right, time to get back in your cage. And they're like, no, we're innocent. And she was like, oh, you should have said. I'll explain to my cousin that you're innocent. So they all get in the rowboat to go to the play. Meanwhile, Snufkin has also received the playbill. <laughs> he is very tired, but the children love him. They want to go to the play. They've made him a present. They've embroidered a tobacco pouch for him and filled it with raspberry leaves. And Snufkin's like, these Moomins are putting on a play. Maybe I can offload all of these children onto Moomin Mama. Yeah, that's been his plan from the start as well. Yeah. He had that thought very soon. Yes. But now he's like, Moomin Mama's going to be at this play. Yeah. Let's go to the play. Time to put the plan into action. Yeah. <laughs> So the play. The play is where all the threads of the story come together. Everybody converges in one place and one time. Miss Abel is triumphant as the tragic heroine. The lion comes on stage to chase the Mimble's daughter. This awakens a really sisterly protective feeling in Little Mai and the audience <laughs> who says, brain that lion and get off my sister, and jumps on stage and bites the lion. The lion, which is actually two beavers in a costume, falls into two halves. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and then the play becomes about somebody who's been away on a long journey in a basket being reunited with her family and the 
acting gets so much better. It's suddenly super real. <laughs> it's super realistic and like engaging and everybody's clapping. Moomin Mama goes around like offering everyone cups of tea and Snufkin hoists all the woodies on stage and is like, hello Moomin Mama, can you look after these for me? And Moomin Mama's like, yes. And then Moomin Mama sees on the edge of the horizon, here comes a boat with her Moomin troll in it. He's come, everybody's very happy except the Hemulin jailer. He's like, that's my prisoners. <laughs> Moomin Mama is like, run away, the police are here. She doesn't know what Moomin Troll's done, but she's sure he did it for a good reason. Yeah, it's not that he didn't do it. It's that he did it for a good reason. (laughs) Everybody's chasing everyone else. Somebody sets the stage to spin. Moomin Troll falls out of the boat. Rapturous applause from the audience. (laughs) Snufkin pulls Moomin Troll into his boat. Moomin Troll is so happy to see Snufkin again. The picture on the front of my book finally happens. It's the most romantic moment in the book, I think. Snufkin sort of rows them away. They lay a false trail for the Hemulin police. Yeah, there's a police chase, basically. And Snufkin knows what to do. So he hides the boat in the reeds and sort of lays a trail to make the Hermulin believe they've gone out to sea. Meanwhile, he sends Moomin Troll back to get everybody else. It's home time. The Moomin family and Snufkin are going home. The water level is dropping. Conveniently. The Woodies are staying at the theatre. The not gifted ones are going to be adopted by the Philijonk because the Philijonk really needs relatives. Missabelle and Wampa have joined the theatre. Missabelle is going to be a tragic dame every night for the rest of her life. Every night a new hairdo. Wampa is like operating the stage lights and the special effects, which really suits him. Yep. And the little kind Hermulin is coming home with the Moomins in the bottom of their boat under a blanket. And she's doing something very secretive under her dress. Yeah. The mysteries of a Hemulin's dress. No, no bounds. The Moomin family are talking about how great it is when everything works out for everybody in the story at the same time. <laughs> it's a funny little meta moment. Yes. Isn't it great when everybody at the end just like finds exactly what's right for them? Snufkin's still being really edgy. They're following us. They're after us. They'll never stop. He feels that it's not over. And he's right. They just arrive at the pass on the way into Moomin Valley and it is teeming with Hermulins. Like They are caught. Then the little Hermulin pops up and offers her 5,000 lines <laughs> as penance. She's done them. She's been scribbling away. She says it soothes her to scribble away. Yeah, she enjoyed it. She enjoyed doing the punishment. It wasn't even a punishment. <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah, but what about putting the signs back up? And Moomin Mama's like, oh, well, couldn't he put some nice signs around my guy? garden like please leave some of the letters for other people and they're like i I guess we could and the little hemulin goes away with the big hemulins and it's a happily ever after sort of snufkin remains a bit melancholy he smokes his raspberry leaves and misses the children and moomin mama at very last gives moomin troll his dinghy it ends with the dinghy yeah which maybe is the most romantic moment if we're looking at a kind of family romance between Moomin Troll and his mother, which is definitely there. It is definitely there. As uncomfortable as it makes many of us. (laughs) Yeah. Banger. Banger. Yeah. I mean, I love this book. Resonates with me a lot as a person of the theatre. Yeah. Dave did a degree in theatre listener and you'd all do well to remember it. What do you mean? (laughs) I mean... You're going to probably say some stuff about dress rehearsals. Where would you like to start with this? First of all, how did you find the second half of the book? I thought it was great. I think this is my favourite now. It's really pacey. I really like when you sort of split up and like follow different characters for different amounts of the book. Like that's my thing. I like that. Me too. And a little bit like Comet and Moomin Land, it does work like clockwork as well. Yeah. The structure is really... Really neat. Like really well 
timed, you know, for when you bring Snufkin in exactly then, exactly halfway through. I feel like it's a parody of the theatre and how a story comes together and everybody gets a happy ending in the last act. I mean, the play itself is a play within a play. Yeah, and I like that too. The book structure is like a play. Should we talk about Snufkin's parenting? Snufkin, like the Mimble's daughter, is somebody who has had parenthood thrust upon him. And he's had it thrust upon him like 25 times more. So it's a lot. And it makes him miserable like immediately. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happens when people have children they don't want to have. He's quite kind to them in a sort of absent-minded way. He gets tar on his hands and then just like wipes them in one of the kids' hair. Well, I mean, it's reasonable, isn't it? The kid's going to get their hair dirty anyway. (laughs) I don't know that using small children's heads as hand towels is actually very good for their sense of personhood. He is trying, though. Like, he's thinking about feeding them and keeping them dry and warm. They all really like him, and that's important. And I think he does have a lot of affection for them. As he gets more to the end of his tether, like you said, he starts following Little Mai's advice more about threatening them with the groke and, you know, threatening to throw them in the river. Yeah, I mean, he's pragmatic, I would say, about the advice. When he's given the advice initially by Little Mai, he doesn't do it, but that's only because she says it doesn't work. But by the end, he's desperate. Nothing is working. They know that he doesn't mean it. That's the problem. So I'm not saying that threatening kids is a good policy. You shouldn't do it. But if the kids know you don't mean it, it's kind of a really meaningless action. I think making really ridiculous threats sometimes works. That is also true. For amusement's sake. Yeah. Not because they really think you're going to do it. Making a joke to a young person to break their way of thinking just for a moment so that they can connect with you is a reasonable tactic, I think. But I don't think he's joking. I don't think he means it. I don't think he'd box their ears. It doesn't really seem like Snufkin could be bothered to do that. He might throw them in the river, but only if they could swim, I think. You're not wrong that Snufkin isn't a great dad to these kids. In some ways, he reminds me of myself, like Snufkin. If there's kids around, suddenly I feel very responsible. I don't want them to run out into traffic. I worry about them all the time. Mm. I'm trying to get them fed. The basics, make sure they're done. And he does do that. You can definitely critique Snufkin's ability to be a parent. But if you compare him to his father, he steps up. He's much better than the jockster. He might step up and decide that the best way of stepping up is to hand them over to a woman as soon as possible. Yeah, hand them over to the mother of all mothers, Moomin Mama. It's annoying that he's trying to palm them off on a woman. Yeah. But in another way, it's very understandable that in the world of the Moomins, he thinks of the best mother that he can think of. He sort of decides to become an absent father by the end. He's like, oh yeah, they'll miss me. I'll send a letter and like visit once a year. Yeah. I guess that's more often than his father visits him. But I would also say that Snufkin isn't a father. No. He is an older child who is suddenly confronted with a load of people to look after that he didn't ask for. He did not create these children. And so at the end, I wouldn't say he's being like an absent father so much as like a a mystical uncle. Yeah. It's very interesting to see Snufkin have to be responsible. He hates it. And he's always avoided it, the whole of the books. Yeah. He has to be, and so he is. And I think his dad would not have been. That's true. In the memoirs of Mima Papa, the jockster 
never steps up. Snufkin, breaking generational cycles as best as he could. Right. It's very interesting parenting in this book in general, because you've got Snufkin, you've got Philijonk, you've got Moomin Mama, you've got the Mimble's daughter. We're seeing lots of different approaches to parenting. Yeah. This is also one of those repeated motifs that I was referring to last episode. Mm -hmm. We've had nibblings that have been in search of a parent. In this, we've had the Woodies, gangs of kids finding their parent is quite a kind of consistent thing and also individual kids who find mm. their parents normally moomin mama in this book she's given everybody a neat little ending and told us where they've ended up we won't be surprised that misabel and wumper are not there in future books no because clearly they're at the theater yeah <laughs> indeed i'm sad to lose the little hemulin she's almost my favorite character yeah yeah should we talk about that little hemulin I thought that her use of handcrafts was really interesting. We've had Hamulins with sort of collecty behaviours and collecty hobbies before. This is a different, more feminine coded hobby that is also more generative. A lot of my hobbies are like that. You know, you're doing a thing, but also you have a thing at the end. If you're baking bread, then you've got a loaf. If you're crocheting, then you've got a slipper. It's also the kind of things that traditionally girls and women were forced to learn and had to do all the time, but that now is considered a bit sort of retro and cottagecore and cute. And I think that it's interesting that the crochet helps her in exactly the same way as writing the lines helps her. It helps her to be doing something with her hands. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Are you like that? Yeah. Me too. I used to, um, when I was very anxious, listen to songs and write down the words, like taking dictation, and it would involve me to such an extent that I couldn't think about other things. I've not written lines as a form of uh, therapy, but I can see it. Did you do dictations at school? No, no, I don't think so. So in French school, you do a dictée at least once a week, and a dictée is like a short text with spelling words in it that makes up a little story that you go home and you practice. And then on Wednesdays, your teacher will read aloud that text and you have to write it down and that's how they check your spelling. It's a very, I guess, classical, often very oppressive, often very stressful education. But I love them. I, I found them so relaxing. Just like letting the words pour into my ears and come out of my hand at the other end. And I felt like being a tube. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That's nice. My relationship to writing lines is less positive. I had a teacher in primary school who messed me up in terms of spell. I mean, I already was not a great speller. I'm dyslexic. But she would keep me in for break times to write lines of things I'd misspelled. And I gotta say, it's given me a lifelong hatred for spelling correctly. It doesn't teach a kid. No, it's, it's pure punishment. Exactly. And it's weird because I'd done nothing morally wrong by misspelling some words yeah she also was always on at me to wear my glasses even though i didn't have to wear them all the time she was a very kind of particular kind of old-fashioned kind of hemulin aunt a war dress if you will I had one of those in the first year of primary school and I think this was the first time I had a teacher 
that didn't think I was really special. Oh, yeah. I was used to teachers thinking I was really special. And she was not impressed with me. She had this thing of keeping us in until we could tie our own shoelaces. We would wear slippers in the classroom and shoes outside because outside was very wet. And she wanted us all to be independently tying our shoelaces. I was not good at independently tying my shoelaces. But she wouldn't come and help you. She would just leave you struggling there with your laces for however long it took, which would possibly be most of break. It's illegal to keep adults in during break times. We're legally allowed to have breaks. And so pretty messed up to not give kids breaks. Yeah. And counterproductive, because if you keep kids in and don't let them go out and play, they're going to play in your lessons, aren't they? Well, exactly. It made me hate her so much. I I don't really think that in my whole life I have ever hated a person as much as I hated her. And she got a comeuppance as well. It was great. So the reason we had to change our shoes was because the floors were all lino and really slippy. And she also happened to be the headmistress of the school. And so she'd been called out of our classroom to like go and deal with something administrative. And she told us all to be really quiet while she left. And of course, we were not really quiet because we were like five and six. And then she came back in, like marched back in really angry to tell us off with her Doc Martin boots with their wet soles. And she slipped. She did this like magnificent, huge fall, cracked her head open on the radiator and like yelled at us all to get out. And I didn't. I remember like watching her there bleeding, thinking, I've never seen your face so close because she never would bend down. She would always stay up high. And so to me, her head has always seemed to be like up in the clouds. I remember having this mean little thought, I'm not going to leave until I see you cry. Wow. This is the little Mai in you. (laughs) And she's shouting at everyone to get out and everyone else has got out. But I was like, no, you know what? You don't let me go out in my slippers and you don't let me go out until I've done my shoelaces. And she'd cracked her head open on the radiator under which were all the shoes. So I went up to her to get my shoes. So I was like this close to her face and like puddle of blood under her head was growing. Oh my God. And <laughs> her lip was trembling. Like I could tell she was just holding it in. She was like, get out, get out. It doesn't matter about the shoes. It doesn't matter about the shoelaces. Just get out. And I was like, no, we're not allowed to go outside without doing up oh our shoelaces. Oh my God. I, I both admire your moxie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. Oh, I, I felt quite evil in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very slowly taking off my slippers and putting on my shoes and doing my laces. And then, like, the moment cracked and she started crying. And, like, as soon as she cried, like, the spell broke. I stopped feeling brave. I stopped feeling rebellious. I ran out of there. I got really scared. An ambulance came. She was taken away. We had a supply teacher for, like, weeks after that. And when she came back, like, basically she was disabled. I think she'd broken her neck or something. Like, she had a neck brace. And she was much nicer to me after that. Wow. Like, that's the thing is it worked. She was improved by this horrible experience. Maybe punishment works sometimes. Yeah, sure. Maybe the punishment (laughs) punishment to teachers. The tormentor of my one year of junior school didn't have such a cathartic and brilliant narrative arc to it. Mrs. Champion, her name was, but I always felt it was an annoyingly like ironic name, you know, like she was not a champion to me. She was the opposite. But it was her final year of teaching, so she kind of retired happily. We had to sing a song about how much we loved her. And this is the difference between you and me, Nina. I had a moment where I was like, Oh, well, yeah, it's the end of the year and she's going off. And, you know, by and large, people are just people. We're all making mistakes. I think you were more effectively socialised than I was. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, well, you know, there is a reason why Little Mai reminds me a little of you. Little Mai's delight in the awful, actually, is one yeah. of the lines I've got. And I feel like we're hearing very much <laughs> Little Mai's story of delighting in the awful. It'd be nice to say nobody got hurt at the end of that story, wouldn't it? But clearly someone did, very seriously. No regrets. And in Nina's opinion... She completely deserved it. I support Nina's right to feel that way because we should not expect forgiveness from the people who have been wronged. But also, I didn't do it to her. She did it to herself. You didn't do anything to her. That is true. (laughs) But she, when I came up to her face, she looked really scared of me. (laughs) This is like your origin story. And then I realised I could terrify people. (laughs) No, I was terrifying before that. I, I know. You're not that terrifying these days, but that's only because you hide it. We do Moomin Troll and Snufkin's romance to have a little bit of light after our dark moment. Yeah, so Snufkin isn't pining for Moomin Troll in the way that Moomin Troll is pining for Snufkin, but he really, really misses Moomin Troll when he's looking after all the babies. Yeah. He's like, ah, and we'll be able to go on night swims and then just like hang out in the cave and talk. Night swimming comes back. It's their thing. When the boat glided in among the reeds beneath shadowing trees, the full moon was rising from the sea. Now listen carefully, said Snufkin. Yes, said Moomin Troll, and the spirit of adventure speeded through his soul on mighty wings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've all been there. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. There is this kind of payoff to all of the melancholy mooming yeah. at the start of the book but it's definitely the case i think that snufkin does care for moving troll but the way of the journey is his path you know yeah. snufkin can only love up to a certain point and i think that's kind of similar to the real life dude that it was based on atos yeah who played that role for tuva in some ways although mm. by this stage in their relationship Tuve was becoming more the Snufkin. Yeah. Because she was going off with her Vivica yes. the way that Snufkin goes off with the world. Should we go on from there to the poetry? Let's do poetry and then we'll go into theatre from poetry. So Moomin Papa is trying to write this tragedy in hexameter, not rhyming. He finds it really, really difficult. The bonds of family and friendship must be broken at the sad command of duty. Alas, then my crown be lifted off by the sister of my daughter's nephew. (laughs) (laughs) What's fun about this in relationship to Tova and Vivica is that during their big, exciting romance, Tova wrote a poetry collection called 
songs for a lady or songs to my beloved and everybody she sent it to found it to be terrible <laughs> and she herself in her letters to Vivica is like I'm slaving over these poems about you again and they're still bad <laughs> it's very hard to write a good love poem or a good love song because the feelings that you have when you're newly in love at least are cliches You can't move for cliches, but you feel them so strongly that they feel like the most profound nuggets of gold. And then you show them to other people. And yeah, that's how they normally take them in my experience. But something that Tova and Moomin Papa have in common is they were both working in these mediums that were not really right for them. Not like freeform poetry, but like poems and a lot of rules. And that clearly this did not suit her, but she thought that this sort of writing exploit would show her love, that she'd done something so difficult. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Moomin Papa's doing here as well, is that everybody's like, well, you're the writer, surely you can do this. And then they all like big him up. They're like, it's really good, except change everything about it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But he's doing it out of love too, I think. I, I think he and Moomin Mama in some way believe, and they're right, that doing the play will bring Moomin Troll back. There were some really nice things within the theatre stuff. We see a dress rehearsal happening that goes terribly. We see it from the point of view of a family of hedgehogs who are too poor to afford to go to the theatre and they get to watch the dress rehearsal. And I love that idea. I wish more theatres did that. The thing after the dress rehearsal, surprise, surprise, is the actual performance. And the performance in this book sounds like just my kind of play. Some people in theatre would say that this was less a play and more of a happening. Or improvisation is another thing this could be called. Like there's rules, there's structures, but within it, people just have a free-for-all, do their own thing. That wasn't what was supposed to happen. Indeed, it it wasn't a deliberate happening. It wasn't a deliberate (laughs) improvisation, but it was one, nevertheless. I love this kind of blurring between what is play and what is real Mm -hmm. little my coming from the audience onto the stage and becoming part of the play brain that lion it's exactly my kind of stuff it reminded me of it might have been a production by peter brook of the tempest or it might have been by a different director but i i read this account when i was studying theater of a play where towards the end of The Tempest, when Ariel is freed from their chains, it was an outdoor performance in front of a lake and the character of Ariel ran towards the water of the lake and carried on running because they put floor like underneath the lake that no one could see. And so they just ran across the lake (laughs) and just carried on running as the rest of the play carried on. Like that... To me, that is my ideal. I would love to make that happen. I've had moments that were like that a little bit. In my first play that I did with my theatre company in university, it was a bar crawl play, so the, the audience went with the characters through the bars. And at a certain point, those characters were kidnapped. But in that moment, when they were kidnapped, it happened to have snowed. And so the two people kidnapping them crunched over the snow towards the characters who were to be kidnapped. And the audience could hear the crunch and see the crunch, but the characters 
obviously didn't within the world of the show. And so that was the closest I've got to that. My theatre origin story is a little bit similar, where I played kind of the role of Little Mike into my small North Welsh village came a theatre in education company. They presented themselves as a cowgirl and a Native American. The cowgirl went on about how well the Native Americans were treated and went on about how great colonisation was and was undermined by the Native American in this piece. Then she left the room and threw some food on the floor too far for the Native American to reach. And the entire kind of assembly room of children were then asked by the Native American to pass him the food and nobody got up. And so I got up and I grabbed the food and I gave that to the guy. And I didn't know it was the point of the play, right? I didn't know that I was doing what they wanted. I thought I was going to get in trouble, but I didn't care because I believed in the drama. Mm -hmm. Like Lil Mai, but for different reasons. I got up to defend a human being and then was rewarded for breaking the rules and rewarded for seeing the lies of the cowgirl and seeing the lies of whiteness, I guess. Mm -hmm. With modern eyes, with now eyes, I'm sure there's plenty you could critique from that piece, but I'll always remember it fondly because it's it showed me the magic of theatre. Mm-hmm. It gave me some political understanding, some very basic ones, but it was a very, very important piece for me. I love plays that break the fourth wall, and this book is all about that. It is all about that. Another thing I like about the play, when does it end? It probably ends never. The rest of their lives are still the play because it kind of feels like it's still the play when they're running back to Moomin Valley. Yeah. I love the theatre play. I wish I could see it for real. I'm quite interested to know if this book was ever made into a play. You could make it in very interesting ways in terms of how you stage it. You could. Let's talk about the magic. Yes, it's a very magical book. It's a very magical book. The magic of the Hattie Fatmas. That was very, very cool. The fact that they are magical beings is canon now. Well, right, it's midsummer, so are the Hattie Fatmas spooks from the other world? Certainly they always have their own impossible-to-understand motivations. They're mysterious, no one knows what they do, they can't understand us. So they are definitely otherworldly beings. Yeah. I feel like they've always been quite magical, but they this are is extra, though. <laughs> very delightfully magical in this book. And as we were saying last time, Midsummer is a time of magic. The thinning of the veil. This is the time that is like Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a time to play. Yeah, and this is very like Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. I think it's impossible for Tuve not to have been familiar with Shakespeare. There's so much Shakespeare yeah. references in this book. The lion itself reminds me of the famous stage direction in A Winter's Tale, Exit Pursued by a Bear. Pursued by a Bear. <laughs> and this is very much Exit Pursued by a Lion. I know, but it's such a rubbish lion. <laughs> He keeps falling in two. Well, that's very nativity play, right? Nativity plays always have a donkey with a head and a tail that go in different directions because they're kids. In this case, beavers. (laughs) And the beavers were doing perfectly well until chaos ensued and confused them. (laughs) Until someone bit one of their legs. In Shakespeare's time, it made sense. There were bears that would have been able to be cruelly treated but taken in onto the stage. To modern directors, it's one of those really impossible stage directions. Moomin Papa's desire for a lion is absolutely an impossible mm. desire from a director. And that is the joy of theatre. 
So the last chapter is called Punishment and Rewards. So we see a few different forms of punishment happen in this book. There's doing lines, which we've talked about, is useless. Being in prison, also useless. But interestingly, the third thing is suggesting that they repair the damage. That sounds more like restorative justice. Yes. That sounds like something that actually when properly applied, could maybe be quite helpful. Well, I think that the end of this book has a an example of restorative justice or transformative justice. One of the things is you bring the people who were the victims of the crime and you bring the people who were the committers of the crime and you bring those people together with the wider community as well and you find ways to make people feel like there is some kind of redress for the crime and the Hemulin feels like the reparations have happened because he gets the lines and that's what matters. I'm happy that he's happy with it, but what was the point of the lines then? They were a bad punishment, I think. Yeah. Because I think if you were going to do it correctly, it would be that Snufkin would have to rewrite the signs and put them up. Yeah. But that is not what was being asked. What was being asked was a completely pointless activity. It's a bit like the little Hermione has bailed him out. Yeah. She's done the penance for him, hasn't she? She's she's sort yeah. of... And I think some kinds of religions, you can kind of do that sometimes. Yeah. But she enjoyed it. And shouldn't really these kind of things be done by people who enjoy them anyway? Yes, but it's not a punishment if you enjoy it. No, it's a reward. I'm not pro-prison. This book isn't either, I don't think. No, it's not. It's not just prisons, though. They're in the sights of abolition in this book. No. It is also park wardens. Yeah. Like, even I find that a bit more controversial. I don't like signs that tell you to keep off the grass, but I do like pretty parks and some plants do need you not to trample that's right grass isn't one of those i don't think this is a nice park doesn't sound very biodiverse there are problems being represented in that park they're not really to do with parks they're to do with uniformity to do with maybe fascism to a slight extent Mm -hmm. she doesn't like authority figures it's a bit unfortunate that those authority figures are always hemulins which is why it's so important that the little hemulin is there i think is that she is definitely a hemulin she has special interests she does have an interest in the rules which i mean if we're going back to hemulins as maybe an autistic representation this is a little bit like the way that women and girls are underdiagnosed because it doesn't present in the same way. It seems like hemulinness also doesn't present in the same way in a girl hemulin or a woman hemulin or somebody who's, you know, living under the expectations of women in the world, is that she's much more considerate of other people's feelings and considers other people's feelings to be part of the rules to be respected. The other hemulins that we've met have not been particularly considerate no that's true although we have seen this behavior from women hemulins in the memoirs of mimi papa i think it's interesting and important to represent those traits as having a good expression in somebody else that there's actually nothing fundamentally authoritarian about being a hemulin that even though it does go that way with a lot of them she's not she's not really interested in controlling other people and making other people conform to what she wants them to do. She is interested in like like doing her things and doing them nicely and keeping other people happy. And is she the first Hemulin who has claimed to have a friend as well? Because I don't think they usually do have friends. No, that's right. They generally don't have friends. 
And she has a little girlfriend, she says. She does. And if we're taking Hemmings as a kind of stand-in for autistic people, there are lots of autistic people. Who are like this Who one. are like that one. Yeah. You have friends. Friendship is very important to them. There are a lot of myths around autistic people that need to be dispelled. And it's useful that even though maybe some of the Hemmings conform to some of those archetypes, we have this one that doesn't. Remember when we talked about the Hemulin whose thing was stamps? And his work with stamps. Seems like her work is crochet, but she's also aware that it's for her. Like when they ask her, what are you making? She actually hasn't got a recipient in mind. She's doing it for herself. She feels like a slightly more self-aware Hemulin. So I like this Hemulin a lot. I'm sad that she is not staying. Misabel and her character arc. Being a tragic heroine, she gets to cry for no reason every night. Every night, if she wants to. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's great. She gets to play all of the tragic heroines. She gets to wear all of the wigs. If you're a woman in the theatre, your only options for good roles are tragic heroines who die. (laughs) It's good to love that because it's all you're offered, or at least it was then. Yeah. It's a bit better now, but only a bit. She is one of many characters who have a whole arc in this book. Yeah, Snufkin has an arc and uh, is challenged as well in a way that we have never seen him. Moomin Mama has a big arc. Yes. You know, she doesn't even care about the sofa when she gets back. I know. She's ready for something new. She's ready to move on. She's ready to be delighted by coming home. You know, like they come back and like the Moomin house is still there, but also it's all like draped in seaweed and stuff. And Moomin Papa's like, don't look, I'll make it just as it was before. And she's like, no, I, I I want to love it now. And I'm happy to have a different three-piece suite in the drawing room. I'm ready for a different colour of plush. She's like, this is an opportunity. Yeah. And it's been an opportunity for her and for the family from the start. Except when Moomin Troll goes. That's not an opportunity to her. That is just devastating. She doesn't realise it's an opportunity, but she should. Because, you know, she can't always be connected to Moomin Troll. Both of them have got to live their own lives. (laughs) The codependency between them is, at this point in the story, is becoming a bit of an issue. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it ends with a dinghy (laughs) is almost sad to me. Yeah. Come on, like, what have you learned? Make it not be a dinghy. I think it's very, very difficult to change traditions that you've set up with your children. Children get very, very attached. And they matter because they are the repetition of the ritual of the spell of love yeah. that you are creating. Yes. So to do the same thing, it does matter. And I shouldn't really knock it so much. My dad making macaroni cheese, or then in later life, us making him macaroni cheese, yeah. was the dinghy, I guess. I think these touch points with your attachment figures do become much more important when other things around you feel unmoored. Absolutely, and unmoored is a correct word to use at this moment. natural history corner this half of the book is focused on snufkin and snufkin's plants so i wanted to talk about the green ferns with the white flowers that he wishes were turnips that is probably poison hemlock (laughs) that's a good gag it's a shame i didn't know that that is a good gag oh i wish i could feed those 
flowers to my children. No, don't do that, Snufkin. You'll kill them. So I thought that was quite fun. It was all part of, you know, a commentary on his character. Because before he totally could have appreciated Poison Hemlock. Yeah. Totally. Would have loved it. And now he's like, it's not a starchy root vegetable that I can feed to all my children. Poetry is gone. There's now just materialism. And then I wanted to talk about the present of the tobacco pouch filled with raspberry leaf instead of tobacco. Very interestingly, red raspberry leaf is used to strengthen the uterus, prevent excessive bleeding after birth. So it's a postpartum drug. It's something to help your body to heal after you've separated from your baby bodily. That's really interesting. It is, isn't it? And it really like casts him in a more maternal role. Like he's been carrying these children, literally carrying them with his body. And then he has decided to leave them in the care of somebody else. There is now a physical distance between their bodies and his body. And he's smoking this leaf. I mean, to actually use this medicinally, you'd have to have it in a tea, by the way, not in a smoke, but you know, he likes to smoke. (laughs) I've smoked raspberry flavoured pipe tobacco before in my life. And it's actually nice. It's rather lovely that his children have given him the treatment that is going to help him separate from them. And that's what he's using it for. He's smoking it and thinking about them and sort of healing that wound between them. He's gone from somebody who he doesn't really believe in houses. He has a tent. Yeah. To somebody who doesn't just move into a house, but tars the roof to keep yeah. the rain out. He goes full in on houses. In theory, the Philadelphia, when she gets back, will have a better house. A better house. For him having lived there. I mean, he has eaten all the beans. Snufkin does completely have to existentially change his worldview for a time. Well, and isn't that what happens to all parents? They have to existentially change their worldview. I have heard that to be the case. I think a lot of parents feel that way, for sure. Yeah. But I also have known parents who have just taken it in their stride, like the Mm. Mimble, or like, uh, probably like Moomin Mama. Yeah. But yes, you're right. A lot of people face existential reality when they're looking into the eyes of their children when they've just been born. Should we do what would Snufkin do? Let's. We've got a real question from a real person that neither of us knows. You can send your questions for Snufkin to at the Podgoblin on Twitter and on Instagram, or you can email us at thepodhat at gmail.com. And we did get this one on Twitter. It is from Twitter user Adriel, and Adriel asks If humans are a great disappointment, must one continue peopling? What would Snufkin do? That is a great question, Adriel, especially for this half of the book. I mean, I don't know this Twitter user at all or have any context for them. There are multiple ways you could interpret this question. Mm-hmm. If that question means continue populating the world, that's what it could mean. I suppose. And obviously, there's no reason for one to do that if one does not want to. No. Nope. Uh, Snufkin would definitely say that. Snufkin would not be pro-eco-fascism. No. And nor are we on no. the Podcoblin's hat. In this book, we get to see what Snufkin does when people are suddenly under his care. And we know that the answer is muddle through more responsibly than you'd necessarily expect. But also get out of it as quickly as you can. <laughs> because you know you're not the right person to yeah. look after these people. 
One way you can read it is that peopling might just mean going out and being with people. Yeah. It might be just being the person in the way that society tells you to be a person. And we don't ever have to be that. No. Snufkin never is that. No. But I do think that Snufkin loves the world and also the people in it. Yeah. I don't think that Snufkin doesn't like people. I don't think Adriel doesn't like people. I think Adriel finds humans to be a great disappointment. I can very much relate, hard relate. Yeah. I think Snufkin would accept that people are flawed and expect them to be flawed and be comfortable with them being flawed. I also think it's important to be comfortable with your own feelings of disappointment and to honour that. I mean, like Snufkin, Snufkin is not thrilled about all of these little babies in his care all the time. And you, Adriel, do not need to be thrilled with the humans in your life all the time. It's like the difference between nice and good. Right. You don't have to be having superficially happy or positive feelings about humans all the time to be a part of humankind or even to be a compassionate, respectful and kind human. If you want to stop continuing peopling for a while, then you can. Like, insofar as it's possible without hurting anybody else. Like, of course, maybe you have dependents. Maybe you have people that you need to look after and maybe there are ways that you can discharge those responsibilities to somebody else, at least for a while. Yeah. Respite is important. Go off on your own. That was definitely what Snufkin would do and play your own music, sing your own song. There is another interpretation that might mean ending being a person. So it might mean suicide. I don't know what Snufkin would think about suicide, but I have felt suicidal i've had suicidal ideation many people i know have and it is something that is hard to deal with and a great comfort yeah all i can say on it is i'm glad i've not made that decision so far myself but the word adriel used is must yes and there is no must about it yes it's entirely up to you these thoughts are really hard to live with but another truth is that many, many, many people live with them every day. Yep. And if you're one of those people, you're not alone. There are there are lots of us. I think what Snufkin would maybe try to encourage a person in that position to do would be to maybe walk away from the great disappointments and find that there are other things that might be interesting to walk towards. Snufkin would get his tent and his backpack and off he would go. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you find something amazing and awe-inspiring and different enough to make you, you know, not greatly disappointed. It won't all be the same everywhere. And the feelings that you're having now can't stay the same forever. And everything does pass. And it might pass a little bit easier if you change your context. Yes. Like if you're always sitting in the same place, having the same very difficult thoughts, even just get on the bus, the landscape will move alongside you and it will give you some different thoughts. And you can't hold all the thoughts in the world in your head at the same time. And eventually something will fall out the other ear, basically. And if you can't get on a bus, you can look up at the sky. 
Yeah. You can change your perspective if you have not got the capacity to go out or you haven't got the physical ability to go out. You can change your perspectives in so many ways. Arts are a good one too. Yeah. I like to lose myself in another story. And that often reminds me that there are other stories yeah. and that we are the writers of our own stories. What Nina says is crucial. I find sometimes the fact that I can decide whether to go on means I do go on. Yeah. There's a, an episode of uh, Down to a Sunless Sea that talks to some people about suicidal ideation. Could be a useful resource, might not be though, because mm -hmm. you might want to be completely thinking about completely different things. But it certainly that will help you to know that you're not alone. So yeah, I mean, a heavy one for our first one from people, but that's okay. You know, we're okay. If there's anything me and Nina can deal with, it's heavy. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So feel free to email or message your queries for Snufkin as heavy or light as they may be. There's no must though, so you don't have to. So this week, you are starting us off on our spirit of the Moomins, Nina. So what text of any kind, story of any kind, have you got to recommend to us that has the spirit, the sense, the texture of the Moomins about it? I'm recommending Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett. <laughs> I knew you'd like this one. <laughs> It's a good recommendation. I've never thought of it in terms of the movements, though, so I'm interested to hear your reasoning. Well, my reasoning is all the theatre stuff. A very funny part of this movement's book is people in the audience not being quite sure that what's going on on the stage is fictional. Right. There is a very similar scene in Weird Sisters, which is Terry Pratchett's first witch's book, Do Not Count Equal Rights, Do Not At Me about equal rights. I agree with Nina on this. <laughs> we are an anti-equal rights, the book podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it plays a lot with ideas about theatre and reality and the way that theatre and stories can transform the world outside of them. It's got a scene where Granny Weatherwax goes to a play and gets confused and tries to arrest the murderer in the play. <laughs> it's also got a very snork maiden-y character in Magrat. That's true. Of course, Granny Weatherwax is my favourite of the witches, but the one that I relate to the hardest is Magrat Garlic. She is also sort of considered by other people to be a bit of an airhead because she likes putting flowers in her hair. And she's kind of romantic, but actually she is those things, but she's also much more than that. She's incredibly practically minded, magically powerful and clever. The book sort of plays with that dynamic between her and Granny Weatherwax, who doesn't value any of those feminine traits and has, at least at this stage in the series, very rigid ideas of what witches should be yep. and are allowed to be. If you're into all the Shakespeare stuff in the Moomins, <laughs> then you'll like you'll this, be yeah. into the Shakespeare stuff in Terry Pratchett. Macbeth in this case. Yeah, so that's my spirit of the Moomins. What's yours? Oh, well, I almost want to say double recommend because I do <laughs> love that book. And it's one of Terry Pratchett's adult books, I guess is worth noting. Just has some swear words in and some sex references. Well, they're very mild. So my spirit of the Moomins this week is a film called How It Ends. This is the 2021 film called How It Ends, not the 
2018 film called How It Ends, so don't get them confused. They are both about apocalypses. How It Ends is a comedy film about the apocalypse, a film where a woman wakes up and is the last day of Earth. Uh, A meteor is coming towards the Earth. Everyone is going to die, including her. And she jollily decides with her younger self, who is there, to go out and kind of make sure everything's kind of tied up for the end of her life, like... (laughs) Talk to her parents, talk to her estranged friend and talk to her ex and try and get all of these kind of relationships dusted off and maybe go to an end of the world party, but she's not sure if she's going to go to it or not. And it was made during COVID. So it's like the streets of uh, San Francisco, I believe, are empty. They were empty usefully because of COVID. As they go out into this world, they meet lots of people who are just as jolly. Everyone is jolly about the end of the world. (laughs) And they also meet some some of the younger versions of some of the other people. It's really a love story between the current and past versions of this main woman. I think it has the spirit of the movements because it is whimsical. It is jolly about an apocalyptic event. It's quite short as films go. I think it's like 83 minutes, so it's great for people who like a short film. Critics didn't like it. I did. I loved it. So that's my recommendation. And so it's your turn this week, Nina, to give us a podcast that, or it doesn't have to be a podcast, we've occasionally done a non-podcast, but a thing that has the spirit of the Podgoblin's hat. Well, I am recommending a podcast, and it's called Wizard Team. It is a black magical podcast for black magical stories. It's a read-along podcast. It's got three really great co-hosts, all from the Black Nerds Create Collective. Two cousins, uh, Robin and Bayana, and their friend Portia. And they are doing a spoiler-free chapter-by-chapter read-through of Amari and the Night Brothers by B.B. Alston. I'm reading along with them. Feel free to jump on though at any time because that's what's good about podcasts. You can listen whenever you're ready. You might be familiar with Amari and the Night Brothers if you are at all into middle-grade fantasy fiction. If you're not, it's about a little girl called Amari. Her brother is missing, presumed dead. She knows in herself that he's not dead. She's getting in trouble at school because she's been bullied and the school system is very unfair, partly because she's a scholarship student, partly because she's black in this very like institutional white space. So she's been sent home from school for standing up to her bully. And then she gets this mysterious email that self-destructs that says, stand by for a special delivery. So the special delivery comes and the box says, like, you can't open this for 12 hours. (laughs) So she waits and then she opens the box and it's got a huge pair of goggles. She puts the goggles on and has this kind of waking dream, which is a message from her brother. And her brother is basically like, if you're reading this, if you're receiving this message, I am missing or dead. I've set this up to be sent to you. Should I ever go missing? Because I want to show you this magical world and this magical world could also be open to you. And that's where I've gone missing. And so then Amari leaves the normal world, goes into the magical world. It's sort of a magical school story, but it's also a little bit like Men in Black. It's got lots of interplay between technology and magic in these really cool ways. And these three readers on Wizard Team are so good and so funny at recapping this story and at discussing sort of the issues that it raises, kind of like we do. So they, in the first episode, they talk a lot about the injustice of the school system. It's really great. We like to talk about that on this show, for sure. (laughs) 
I really recommend it. They're really experienced, good podcasters. Great. That's all for episode 10. 10. 10. Double digits. We've made it. Next week, we'll be reading the first two Moomin picture books. Next week's books, if you're reading at home, are the book about Moomin, Mimble and Little Mai and Who Will Comfort Toffle. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for next week's episode. Why is this picture book full of holes? Is this book really about the Mimble or is it about the Mimble's daughter? And who is Toffle and why do they need comforting? Until next week, make sure to only have bad dress rehearsals. Bye! Bye. Ha <laughs> ha